Well, we're trusting that you've had this amazing, intimate experience with God. And we're going to continue on in that course, in that journey, as we look into God's word. As we pick up from where we left off last week, as we're going through the book of Isaiah. And we're, this is a six-week study that we are in. We're midway through. Um, and I know some of you have actually said to me, you are crazy. You are crazy to think that we can get through Isaiah in six weeks. Well, we're not getting through the whole book of Isaiah. We're picking some parts with the goal and the mindset of, I'm hoping that this will give you a taste of, of Isaiah and that it will intrigue you and will give you a desire to dive into it deeper on your own time with God. And maybe this is a book that you can start to study and meditate on. And we're just giving you a taste of this. And we are in this study called Beyond the Ruins. And we're looking in the book of Isaiah, and we, and we understand and we know that Isaiah was one of these Old Testament prophets that God raised up during this time to speak truth to power. He, he, was, the, he was raised up to speak to the leadership of Israel that was corrupt, that was a leadership of idol worshipers, that they were leadership that were oppressing the poor. So Isaiah is sent by God to speak truth to these people, to remind them that because of their disobedience, because of this growing arrogance that is being sensed in the nation of Israel, but definitely more visible in the leadership of Israel, that he's there to remind them because of their disobedience, there is going to be consequences because of this. And he says their consequences for their disobedience is that they're going to be conquered. They're going to be conquered. That Israel will be laid in ruins, the temple destroyed, and people will be taken into captivity. But he also reminds them that through that judgment time, through these consequences, that God will not even forsake them, even in exile. In the first week of the study, we looked at how in the midst of this national crisis, it was a national crisis, it was a spiritual crisis, it was a cultural crisis, that Isaiah was given this amazing, deep vision, this powerful vision, where he comes face to face with the holiness of God. And one of the things that we read in that vision, one of the things that happens as he encounters God's holiness, is that he turns inward. Because at that point, all of his focus was outward. His focus was focusing on the oppression, focusing on um, the marginalized, focusing on the corruptness of, of the leadership. But the holiness of God changed his focus. And it went from that outward focus to this inward focus where now he was focusing on his sin the corruptness of his sin in his heart. And what the holiness of God leads Isaiah to, which is exactly what the holiness of God should lead, to, lead all of us to, it led him to repentance. Which is what God's holiness always does in our lives. In the second week, we talked about this new song that God has invited um, Israel to sing, but us to sing as well. And this new song is, it was its own music genre at this time where every time 
a new song was being sung, um, it was always it was always a song about victory. Usually, if a nation went out and, and had victory, they'd come back. A new song would be written, and people would sing this new song about this celebration, this victory of overcoming their enemy. And this is a song that God has invited us to sing. And this new song allows us to move beyond trying to think that we can actually fix this world, this broken, sinful world. And what it actually does is it invites us to join with God, who because of what he has done for us on the cross, has fixed the world, is fixing the world, and will fix the world. And this new song leads us into this new thing that God is wanting and desiring to do in each of our lives. That we cannot allow fear or doubt or our past, whether they're victories or failures, from experiencing the new thing that God wants to do in our life. Last week, we talked about the servant of the Lord. And we recognize and we, and we understand that the New Testament writers identify the servant of the Lord as Jesus. Isaiah says that the servant of the Lord um, is going to come and is going to bring Israel out of the ruins. It's going to rebuild the temple. It's going to rebuild the city. But it's clear, though. It's clear that as you read through the passages, he's not just talking about rebuilding Jerusalem. He's not just talking about rebuilding the temple with brick and mortar. That one day, will be destroyed again, right? But what he's talking about in these passages about the servant of the Lord is about a new Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that can never be destroyed. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And that brings us to where we land today, where we're going to settle into chapter 54. And here in chapter 54, we find Isaiah using two metaphors that actually help us understand the kingdom of God, that the servant of the Lord is building and the impact it has in our lives. So these two metaphors, I believe, teach us three things. The first thing that this metaphor teaches us is this. It takes a miracle. It takes a miracle to live out your purpose. It takes a miracle to live out your purpose. This idea to actually live out what God has created you to do and what God has called you and created you to be, it actually takes a miracle for you to actually do that, for you to be able to live that out in your life. Starting in verse 1, Isaiah 54, this is what we read. He says, sing, barren woman. There's the first metaphor that we're going to be looking at. Sing, barren woman. You who were never born a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide and do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. 
these first three verses of 54 focus on what Isaiah refers to as the barren woman. Now, this woman who has never been in labor has so many children that she needs to enlarge the place of her tent. In other words, what he's saying is she has to build an addition onto her house just to house all of the children that she's going to have. That's really what he's saying here. Now, it's really a clear message of hope here. God is reminding them that one day, he'll bring them back out of exile and repopulate the city of Jerusalem, that they will re-enter the promised land. But there's more to this prophecy, though. There's more than just a reminder that the people of Israel will get back home. In Galatians 4, we see what that more is when Paul is talking about all the people who have put their faith in Jesus and in describing all these people who have come to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Look at what he says. Listen to what he says in Galatians 4, 27. He says, For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy, cry out loud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than, than of her who has a husband. So it's literally a direct quote from Isaiah 54 that, that Paul is using. It. Paul is saying that all of these people, and all these people are including you. They're including me. They're including us, that we, we are the fulfillment of Isaiah 54. Did you know that? That you are a fulfillment of Isaiah 54. If you are a follower of Jesus here today, you are a fulfillment of Isaiah 54. Both Isaiah and Paul are saying that it's an absolute miracle of God. That just like a woman who has never been in labor, giving birth to all of these children is a miracle. And it's only something that God could do. And in the same way as people who are born again, that also is an absolute miracle of God. And that is what Paul is saying here in Galatians 4. This is what he's referring to of what Isaiah said, was, is saying in Isaiah 54. And sometimes when we look around, and I've heard it plenty, I've heard it plenty of times. We, we say, well, where are all these miracles? Where are all the miracles? We read about them. We see them all the time happening in the Bible. Where are the miracles here today? Are they no longer valid? Does God not do miracles anymore? Did we do something wrong that we don't see these miracles? Like, where are all the miracles? And when we say that, what I believe is happening is we are actually ignoring the fact that there is actually nothing more miraculous in the world than a life that has been raised to life in Christ. I believe there is nothing more miraculous of someone's life being raised up in Christ. That they were dead. That's what we're told. We are dead in our transgressions. But because of Jesus, we, if we say yes to him, we get raised up in life in Jesus Christ. I think that is one of the 
most miraculous things we will ever experience. I believe it's a greater miracle than a physical healing. That's in my humble opinion. It might not be yours, but in my humble opinion, I believe it's greater than an actual physical miracle. That that is the greatest miracle that we actually will experience in life. Our mission as a church, and you hear it all the time, right? And you should know it. If I ever quizzed you, everyone should know it. And if you don't, you might aren't paying attention. But I say it every single week. Our mission here is to connect people to Jesus and to one another. That's our desire, is to connect people to Jesus so they can experience being raised in life in Christ, right? Our part in this mission is to point people to Christ. That's our part. That's all we can do, is point people to Jesus. And it's God's part is to raise people in life in Christ. That's God's part. Our part, point them to Jesus, Point them to Jesus, right? And allow God to do his part in all of this. Because we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't save people. We can't raise people to life in Christ. That's only something God can do. But we can definitely point them in the right direction, right? Why? Because it's a miracle. Think about it. It's a miracle. And every time it happens, we should see it for the miracle that it is. I think at times we don't celebrate enough when people finally see that they need a Savior and they understand that that Savior needs to be Jesus. I don't think at times we celebrate that enough. Because you cannot become the person God creates you to be unless you experience the miraculous in your life. And I think sometimes we forget that. I really do. I think sometimes we forget that. I think when we look at these heroes of faith in the Bible and we think that God was able to do something incredible with them, and we think, well, it's because they were special people. They were smart. They were talented. They were special people. That's why God was able to use them the way he did. But here's the reality. That's just not true. God did something incredible with their lives, because God did something miraculous in their lives. And that's why we could do something incredible with our lives. Because we are broken, sinful people, the only way we can live out God's purpose for our life is when God miraculously intervenes and gives us a life that we could never manufacture on our own. That's why Jesus says you have to be reborn again, right? You have to be transformed by this miraculous work of God to live out the reason you were put on this earth. So one of the things that we can learn from one of these two metaphors that we find in Isaiah is that it takes a miracle to live out the purpose that God has placed on your life. Another thing that we can learn from this passage and these metaphors is this. God's anger is swallowed up by God's love. God's anger is swallowed up by his love. 
And in this next passage, we're going to see this new metaphor being developed and being brought into the passage. So we pick up, starting in verse 4, he says, Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. There's the next, there's the next metaphor that we're going to be looking at. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The second metaphor that he uses to describe the kingdom of God is one of a wife that is separated from her husband because she had been unfaithful to him. Now, throughout the servant songs in Isaiah, Israel is often depicted as a wife. And God is usually depicted as her husband. And like a loving husband, God enters into this covenant marriage with Israel and commits to nurturing and being faithful to that relationship. But in response, Israel is not faithful, actually. She's unfaithful. She pursues false gods. She worships idols. She commits spiritual adultery. And it's not just a one-time fling. It's not just a summer fling. This is something that goes on for decades. And what does God do because of all that? We are told that in a moment of anger, it says, so honest here in this passage, that in a moment of anger, God abandons Israel. The passage says he hides his face. Now, what does that mean? It means that God did what any spouse would probably do in the exact same situation. God says, I just, I can't be with you right now. I just, I can't. I am so angry with you right now. And I feel so betrayed because of what you've done. You chose to withdraw yourself from me for all of these years. So now I need to withdraw myself from you. And of course, there are consequences, right, for God withdrawing himself from Israel because Israel is just this tiny little nation. Even think of it today, they still are, compared to all these other big countries that are powerful. Granted, Israel is a powerful country. But Israel is just, at this time, is this this tiny little nation that's just surrounded by all these big, huge, powerful nations and empires. So when God withdraws himself, in comes Syria, right? In comes Babylon. And Israel is conquered and taken into exile. So, what happens next, right? Right? 
there's been this infidelity, this unfaithfulness. And God, in response, out of anger, says, I just can't be with you right now. So what happens next? Well, next is divorce, right? Next is God moving on and finding another wife, right? But that's not what happens here. Look at this text again, which I believe really truly helps us to understand the very heart of God. Verse 6, the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected. And for a brief moment, I abandon you. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God is saying, yes, I'm angry with you. But my love is bigger than my anger. Yes, I'm angry with you. But my anger is swallowed up in my love that I have for you. So God is saying, so I want to restore this marriage. I I want to renew our vows. I want to bring healing and restoration of what has been damaged. And God's message to you is the exact same as it is to the Israelites. Whatever it is that you have done, wherever it is that you have failed, whatever idols that you have placed before God in your life, God is saying this, my love for you is bigger than my anger. Like, isn't that a relief, right? God's love is, for you is bigger than his anger. And God concludes with this amazing declaration in verse 10. He says, though the mountains may be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. In other words, what God is saying here is, is, I want you to know, I want you to know, Israel, I want you to know, who's watching, that this relationship that you have with this holy God, I want you to know that this is a relationship that is durable. That's what he's declaring here. It's a relationship that's durable. It's more durable than the mountains. Yes, the mountains can be shaken. The mountains can be moved. But this relationship, this marriage will not be shaken. That's how durable our relationship is with God. That's how much he loves you. That durability, just to be clear, is not the product of your faithfulness. My faithfulness. It's not the product of your accomplishments or my accomplishments. It's durable because it is a relationship that is rooted in grace. It's a relationship in what, that is rooted in what Jesus did for you on the cross. See, it's the cross that makes our relationship with God durable. It's the cross that allows us to weather the storms, the disappointments, the failures of life. It's the cross 
that makes our love bigger than our anger. It's the cross that allows our anger to be swallowed up in our love. So we're seeing in this second metaphor that God's anger is swallowed up by his love. And then lastly, what we can learn from these passages is this, that God wants to enlarge your tent. God wants to enlarge your tent. Again, listen to what he says at the beginning of this chapter, back in verse two, he says, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your curtain, your tent curtains wide and do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes for you will spread out to the right and to the left. It's a reminder that what Isaiah said is that God calls all of us to be spiritual parents. Whether we are married or single or widowed, whether we've given birth or not, that all of us, he's saying, all of us have a chance and an opportunity to be so used by God that we actually have to enlarge our tent, that we actually have to make an addition onto our home, make an addition onto our church. That God will enlarge your tent. So let me ask you a question. Where is God calling you right now to enlarge your tent? Where where is he calling you to make room, to make space in your heart, in your life right now? Where's God calling you to make more space in your life for him to do his miraculous work? What is God calling you maybe to let go of? What new territory is God calling you to claim right now? Whatever it is, whatever that may be, Isaiah says, enlarge your tent. He's saying, don't hold back. He's saying, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. Why? Because if you do all of this, he says God promises that he will enlarge your territory, that he will use you in ways that you could never imagine. That if we do this as a church, that God will use First Baptist in ways we could never imagine and never dream of if we are willing to lay down whatever it is that we need to lay down so that he can enlarge our territory. Enlarge your tent. Make space. Make space. Make room in your life for God, for what God wants to do in you first, and then through you because of that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have this desire to have this amazing relationship with us. Lord, we thank you for the messages of hope and encouragement that our relationship in you is durable. Yes, I'm sure there are a lot of times where you're angry with us, but we are grateful that your love is bigger than your anger. 
Thank you that because of what your son did on the cross is what makes our relationship durable. It has nothing to do with us. Thank you that as we learn, as we learn this stuff, Lord, as we look for ways to lay things down and surrender things and to be used by you, Lord, that you have this immense desire to enlarge our territory, to enlarge our tent. So, Lord, my prayer for all of us, individually and us corporately as a church, Lord, I pray that we just have this desire and this prayer of making room. Making room for you. Making room for you to do the miraculous in us and through us. I pray we are willing, obedient followers so that we can experience this in our life so others can experience it as well. Thank you that you want to do this, these miraculous, amazing things in us and through us. Help us with making room and making more space in our life for you. We pray this in your name. Amen.